trigger warning. This episode may include discussion around domestic violence and identity-based discrimination, which we acknowledge may be difficult for some listeners. If you or someone you know requires support in the UK, please reach out to the National DA Helpline. The creator of this advertisement may think that it's humour and it wants to use it to attract people. But, you know, I think most women or like Asian women, of course, would experience that kind of humour. They would just use it as a joke, but you don't feel like it's worth laughing at. Welcome to Tong, Tracing the Trend podcast exploring the origins of cultural phenomena in China, from niche to mainstream, from past to present. Episode 3. Hello and welcome to Tracing the Trend. Today we're diving into the topic of feminist messaging and more broadly marketing to women in China. As usual, this is a forum for knowledge exchange, learning and exploration. I'm Jenny Zhang and joining the conversation today is my co-host, Stefan Harvey. Hello. And our guest, Elva Drew. Elva is a commercial video producer, having worked on projects for Adidas, Air Asia, and Huawei across Chinese and Western markets. She studied production and directing at Shanghai Theatre Academy and has an MA in Arts Management from King's College London completing her dissertation on advertising in China. Before we begin, I'd like to point out this is an incredibly rich and complex subject in which our time today will only scratch the surface of. Before we can jump to what is happening in recent times, we feel it's worthwhile to lay some groundwork on how women have been presented in Chinese media and highlight the changing dynamics and drivers between people, state and corporations. Introduction. So there are all kinds of messaging that puts women at the center since, well, more orchestrated mediums of communication began, from public messaging to advertising and this whole space in between, how women are represented in media and marketing and how they're spoken to as end audiences change throughout Chinese history. And it's much determined by politics, economic factors, societal shifts, and changing culture. We'll do our best to provide an overview of communications featuring and aimed at women, which developed from the end of the Qing dynasty in the early 20th century, right up to feminist advertising in modern day. As we move on to spotlighting more recent case studies, it's fair to also highlight that feminist messaging and how it manifests in this country is unique to Chinese society. Thus, direct parallels cannot be drawn against what's happening outside in Western discourse. The origins from past to recent times. So I want to begin by looking at how women were depicted, advertised to, and also used in advertising during the Republican era. Stefan, take us right to the beginning. So back in the 1920s and 30s, Shanghai was sometimes known as the Paris of the East for its vibrant cultural scene. It was a quasi-colonial hub that saw the mixing of many cultures in a burgeoning modern market that gave rise to advertising as we know it today in China. 
A large reason for this, unfortunately, was because after China lost the first Sino-Japanese War in 1895, the Japanese forced China to sign the Treaty of Shimonoseki, which allowed foreign businesses to open in treaty ports. Advertising in the 1920s and 30s, often considered of paintings of pale, made-up Chinese women models promoting a wide range of products from also a range of Asian and Western brands, women in chi paos or chongsam, what is now considered kind of a traditional Chinese outfit but was very new at the time. Women would be framed either promoting a product directly or simply featuring in an advert based on their attractiveness wearing these kinds of outfits. Considering the gendered marketing of products at that time, it was interesting that, you know, the posters for cosmetics like soaps and tobacco products might not have seemed radically different. Yep. So a really interesting point is that different products, like you say, were marketed to different people, but often they were all framing women in a similar situation. So regardless of the product being advertised, you would just see a very nicely made up well-dressed woman in the image. And what is interesting is that sometimes you could argue that those adverts were attracting a male gaze, largely for tobacco, for example. But if the advert was for makeup, then surely the advert was targeting women more themselves. And this male gaze was kind of less important. Probably unavoidable to some extent, though, given that it's fair to assume that the majority, if not all of the artists of these advertising paintings were men themselves, which is something I'd like to get onto later. So what you're saying is that tobacco products aimed at men, cosmetic products aimed at women were depicting women in very similar poses, styling, image. So really, it's the women that mattered far more than the product. Yes, that's a really good point. And to follow on from that, these depictions of these women, whilst some analysts might criticize them for carrying a male gaze in this day and age, they were actually a source of national pride at the time in the form of a new kind of modernity. So there was this concept of the new woman at the time, which wanted to frame women as more liberated, living a freer lifestyle in a modernizing society as Republican China looked out to foreign countries for new ideas about politics, society, science, and so on. So definitely within the context of the era, having come out from a series of dynasties, Chinese empires that very much focused on Confucian values, at least what they thought they were doing at the time had an element of progressiveness to it. And again, these influences of imagery and also business practices came from a wide range of cultures and influences, namely Western and Japanese. We know that Unilever was present at the time, and there were also a lot of Japanese consumer goods present in China because of this quasi-colonial presence. A one place where a lot of these paintings were often found were on kind of consumer calendars that were known as Pai, which is basically an old word for calendars. But they were also often colloquially called cigarette calendars. And it would be a series of pinups of very pretty women. And on each page, there would be a sponsored cigarette brand that would be present. Head over to our Instagram at Tong Global to see some references of some of the advertising that we're talking about today.
that's really interesting to hear some influences already permeating within Chinese borders at that time. I'd be curious to know how this developed, because as we know, Chinese history and how politics evolved has shaped how women were depicted as well. Absolutely. So this burgeoning market and culture of advertising was largely halted first by the Civil War and then ultimately by the Communist Revolution in 1949. And of course, the Communist Party, the CCP, firmly opposed capitalism and any kind of focus on the individual. However, one thing we do want to stress is that just because advertising was something that the CCP wished to eradicate, that didn't mean that all kinds of messaging aimed at and about women was going to become a thing of the past. What merely happened was that the control over narrative was transferred into the hands of the party state. One interesting thing that I found out is that a lot of the painters of the Republican era adverts were taken under the wing of the Chinese Communist Party for propaganda painting. So as we look at the aesthetics of a lot of the communist visual publicity and propaganda, we see how themes from the Republican era seem to persist. And there's quite a logical reason for why, because often it was the same, very same hands painting those images post-1949. And looking at these images post-1949, we can notice how paintings of key political figures and also model workers were more symbolic of the socialist, realist aesthetic promoted by the party and also largely influenced by Russia. But it was to a large extent a socialist realism with Chinese characteristics, if you will. And a lot of the bright colors and idealized beautiful faces were very much reminiscent of advertising pre-1949. And in fact, if you go to the Shanghai Propaganda Art Museum, which is still in the Xuhui district in Shanghai today, you can see original prints of posters from both the Republican era and post-1949 quite close to each other in neighboring rooms, which I think is a really great exercise in displaying how messaging as a wider media is not exclusive to either advertising or propaganda, and that just because the political structures changed over time doesn't mean that there weren't trends that persisted throughout both eras. So there might have been some similar aesthetic tropes, but of course the content between messaging in both eras was very different to most extents. The communists at least very much talked the talk on gender equality. There's Chairman Mao's famous phrase, women hold up half the sky. On that Labour reforms also brought women into the workplace like never before in Chinese history. While new marriage laws stride for equal gender rights in the home, lending women more autonomy over who they have families with. So this is a really poignant and very pivotal fold in time in Chinese history in regards to women finally having power and influence to a much higher degree than they previously did. I think certainly the intent was there, but sometimes the realities of this messaging maybe didn't follow through in quite the same way. So while a lot of public messaging and state cultural productions beautified not just women, but all Chinese citizens, there is a large consensus now among many thinkers and academics that a lot of these narratives and laws post-1949, rather than completely promoting gender equality, often largely masculinized women. 
So a huge example of this is Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, who was a former actress and also the mind behind the model operas, the Yangban Xi, which were the cultural productions that defined the Cultural Revolution. Jiang Qing stressed that female beauty was insignificant compared to a strong will and revolutionary fervor. And on top of that, images of robust women workers or even martial performers in some of these model operas, such as the Red Detachment of Women, served to frame women as capable of doing work traditionally reserved for men. But at the same time, they hardly did much to praise domesticity or make much of an attempt to rebalance unequal labor distribution in the home. So while women were expected to go out and work in the fields and factories, I think it's fair to assume that Chinese husbands were rarely coming home and doing 50% of the housework after working hours. Taking a step further on our chronological timeline, the reform era, which began from the late 80s onwards, facilitated the revival of advertising as we know it today. I believe in 1979 there were 10 registered advertising agencies in the whole of China. And by 1992, there were over 16,000, which aligns with essentially the development of the Chinese economy. Between 1986 and 1990, China adopted an open door policy, which opened the country to foreign investment and encouraged development of market economy and private sector. Marketing to women in the modern day economy. In this section, we'd like to spotlight a spectrum of campaigns from corporations aiming to connect with women in China through various forms and channels. The women focused market, or the so called she economy, is a term coined by China's education ministry in 2007. The 2017's China Women's Consumption Survey Report, jointly published by Ruwen and Global Times, showed that more than 50% of married women earn the same income as their spouses, or even higher than their spouses. And about 80% of Chinese household consumption is decided by women, including expenditure on eating and drinking, education and cultural activities. So this she economy really refers to the increasing power of female consumers. Thus, it's not really a surprise that brands are cashing in on things such as International Women's Day. Xiaomei Li, a well-known feminist activist, mentioned that the day's significance has really moved away from female empowerment to retail in recent years. She highlights that the mainstream of Chinese society has not talked about real women's issues and challenges on International Women's Day for a really long time. She also says they don't even dare to use the three words Fu which refers to the original name Women's Day in China and has connotations to working women. In previous years, this has been branded as Queen's Day or Goddess Day, as if this is the day where, when everyday women finally have the chance to be doted on. It's just consumerist feminism, says Xiaomei Li. But consumerist feminist, perhaps, is an interesting point to make, as this could just be Chinese women's way of celebrating female power. Stefan, over to you now for some case study examples. So we want to look at a range of Chinese adverts from the last few years, maybe up to the last decade, 
and we're going to explore the good, the bad, and the ugly of some Chinese advertising campaigns in the context of their attitudes and representations of women. So let's start off with some of the more notable faux pas that we've seen in previous years. So one of the most significant advertising campaigns was a huge coconut water brand in China, Yeshupai, um, which a few years back used the celebrity spokesperson Xu Dongdong, among other female celebrities and also just female models, to claim that drinking coconut water and their coconut water in particular helped to make your breasts larger, which obviously was selling a complete myth and a very problematic myth at that in the sense that it was peddling the message that all women should want to have larger breasts. I think whilst this seems quite horrific in today's context, we must remember it's not that long ago that we had magazines such as Maxim magazine, Nuts magazine that were displayed in you know eye level across all of our newspaper stands and major shops in the UK and in the West. So yes, it's it's interesting to to hear this, but I also I can definitely see some resemblance of this only five, ten years ago, fifteen years ago in the UK. I think that feminist advertising could be the only exit for most Chinese women if they want to empower themselves or show their powers to express themselves in a larger discourse. Because something like too political or too serious is not very、uh, popular to talk about in Chinese major discourses. So, like the Women's Day, most Brands will celebrate women's power.、Um, I can't deny that their main goals is to attract women to buy more things, but that could be the only moment that women are truly be seen in, no matter the commercial world or in our、uh, daily lives. That's true, and I agree with the fact that it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. There are different goals and agendas that could be met through one moment or through one umbrella messaging. So back in 2013, Alibaba, the huge tech giant. Released a rather sexist recruitment advert featuring women pole dancing. I think in workplace environments, saying things like "I love tech boys," and the final question for the recruitment advert was, "They, as in these pole dancing women, want to be your co-workers. Do you want them to be yours? Do you want that too?" And this came out in 2013, but was picked up more recently in a survey of Chinese job advertising by Human Rights Watch in 2017. So we'll get on to some more positive messaging in terms of workplace discrimination. But how do you guys feel about messaging like that by also just such like the Chinese corporation? It's like the the Apple or Facebook or Google of China. Everybody, in theory, wants to work there. So, what kind of impact does that have on the attitudes of men and women? I think that it is not only a discrimination of women. Actually, it's a kind of discrimination of men too.、Um, if they want to attract men like this, to only to want to work with、um, pretty girls in a company, 
if I'm a boy, I would think that they are um, they're not respect me as well as a human being. And also, um, it's just a disaster for an advertisement, I believe. But one thing very interesting in China is that sometimes um, if a commercial is really bad, I mean, for a production or its meaning uh, in, in, their, in, the, in the perspective of their um, content, sometimes it's bad, but it will be so popular and um, people will talk about it. And that's the, maybe that's the goal of commercial, probably. Right, kind of just creating some kind of controversy. Yeah, so I think that sometimes um, this kind of bad exposure is better than no exposure, probably. Which is a dangerous path to go down. But like you say, you can see why from the perspective of just trying to gain reputation and increase engagement, that's that's something that marketers would would attempt in certain situations that's quite common actually in marketing particularly in things like uh, fashion or art or celebrity you know causing chaos and controversy is actually good for sales at the end of the day or good for engagement and conversation i mean that's ultimately why you would hope that movements in reaction against these things gain momentum as well because a lot of people who are in control of messaging do just want engagement and they might put morals out of the window. The last example of quite a major faux pas also has a silver lining to it and is an example of how things do change when problematic adverts are released. So quite recently, there was an advert by the Shenzhen company Pure Cotton who make tissues and they released this advert which depicted what we are meant to assume is a woman wiping off some makeup with some wipes. And she's clearly in a public place, walking towards the subway or something like that. And you see a hand grab her on the shoulder. And then when she turns around, in inverted commas, this person is wiping off their makeup. And all of a sudden, the act has been changed to a man. And it's sort of a quite blokish guy in a voice saying, yeah, mate, what do you want? And the idea is that then the person who is about to potentially harass them is put off by the fact that they weren't of, quote unquote, the right gender to, you know, treat wrongfully in a public place. So let's talk about that first, and then we can talk more about the societal reactions afterwards. So what do you guys think about that? Just that kind of narrative in the advert in the first place. A lot of people have likened it to a form of victim blaming. Um, I think the the creator of this advertisement may think that it's humor and it wants to use it to attract people. But, you know, I think most women or like Asian women, of course, would experience that kind of humor. They would just use it as a joke, but you don't feel like it's worth laughing at. Yeah, that's my point about this. Yeah, it's definitely representative of wider microaggressions in in any society towards women and and Asian women in general in this situation. So obviously there's plenty to criticize about the adverts, but a quite productive outcome of the outcry that came following this advert was that the Shenzhen local government provided an official guidebook on gender discrimination in marketing and advertising, basically saying at the very least you you can't do this, you can do this to effectively prevent things like this happening again in the future. So it's a really interesting example of 
at least local governments providing a clear and also actioned response to public outcries? Um, I think that it's definitely a good thing if these kind of advert can no longer exist that includes uh, gender discriminations or other not politically correct things. But this also reflects that even a local government can sometimes control the production of commercials. That's really um, terrified me, actually. If a local government of, it's just a small city, or even the Chinese government should not have those kind of power to regulate too much things. Yeah, I think there's definitely that balance of it's great that responses are being heard and actioned, but also fundamentally what it's pointing to is the ultimate power of control and thus with control, you know, what information is withheld and what information is encouraged alongside that. I suppose you could like discuss a new term that you could call something like well-intentioned or benevolent censorship, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Kind of like like Jenny says, it's still about control, but ideally in the interests of people who feel like they're being discriminated against. But there's always that fine line between it being purely good and it silencing other forms of expression. So yeah, that's a great point. Moving on, we want to talk now about some adverts that are positive. And maybe maybe we should make this more of an open discussion and not go through advert by advert. Um, I could just introduce a few that have been particularly significant in the Chinese market in recent years. There was a huge campaign by SK2 about the narrative around leftover women, which is the idea that women in their late 20s or at definitely age 30 and over, if not married, are considered leftover, have not sort of conformed to the societal expectation of getting married and having kids and so on. On a slightly similar note, there was a Chando campaign a few years back, which is a domestic makeup brand who created this great advertising campaign looking at the discrimination that women face in interviews by placing men in an interview room with a board of women interviewers. And the men were made to answer typical questions that women would answer about their age, possibly their body, their plans for having kids and so on. And also one that Elva can tell us plenty about is the underwear brand Naywai, who ran a fantastic body positivity campaign depicting women largely just in their underwear and promoting the idea of feeling comfortable in your body in its most basic sense. From my perspective, I, as a marketing specialist, I can't help but look at this through a marketing and sales lens. However, I do think that all three campaigns have done a great job in tapping into genuine consumer challenges and issues that Chinese women are facing in market. So I think SK2 is definitely a success for a commercial video, but I want to say commercial video is not documentary or anything very serious. Um, it can definitely reflect certain levels of the reality, but the goal of commercial is to attract people not to um, make certain kind of people angry about one brand. So it can't touch anything like the structural oppression or um, what men are wrongly seeing women. 
or anything like that. It can just put those pressure on women to make it as these、um, difficulties that women are facing is all from themselves. There is because they are not confident enough, but actually, it's not. That's a really good point, Elva. So, is even though Nay the Nay campaign was a really powerful campaign in the context of the Chinese market, did it still not discuss a lot of the structural things that maybe it could have to be seen as more powerful, perhaps? Yeah, I think that for Nay, it includes six kind of women. Like they want to reflect six kind of women, but obviously they're. Is there are not just six kinds of women in China or in any other societies. So there's type of women that are excluded. For example, I did interviews about this campaign. How、uh, the audiences respond to the campaign. They said that, for example, trans women or women with disabilities are obviously excluded. So most of them think that the reason behind this is. Because it's in the very early stage for the Chinese society to promote feminist messages, so the first step would to empower those with small boobs or big boobs or even skinny or a bit fat. So maybe trans women and women with disabilities will be the next step. So that's really interesting for making those women into. Different categories. Which one is the first step, and which one is the next step? Yeah, completely. I see what you're saying because something I、um, mentioned to Jenny beforehand was how I think the Nayway campaign is great, but if you wanted to promote that as a body positivity campaign in the West, it wouldn't seem diverse enough. Obviously, China's population is a lot more homogenous than, say, the UK or the US. So that would explain why it's just like Han Chinese faces, but like you say, the the body types and gender types are still quite limited. So to round off,、uh, I think we've discussed some really interesting case studies here. The one thing I want to recap and again make clear to the listener is really how there are many different factors and components that interplay here. There are women's needs, and simply marketing to women's needs. There are marketing femininity or perceived desirable factors and ideals. There is feminist messaging, and there is body positivity and inclusivity. And with this, they overlap, and they're not mutually exclusive, which makes this conversation and this evolution more fascinating. Direct feminist messaging in society and commerce. How feminist protest and action looks in China is different from the West. That doesn't necessarily mean that people in China don't strive for the same ideals of equality, such as equality of opportunity and empowerment of women in minority positions. However, women's issues and struggles are different in China simply because. Women in China face different challenges than other countries. Feminism also looks different in China and has many different faces. So we're familiar with certain, you know, terms such as ignorant feminism, Chinese feminism, C feminism,、uh, and the different variations within that. And different people 
simply redefine and realign resources, rights and responsibilities in their own particular ways, even if the public conflates them into one undifferentiated feminism. Yeah, I think it's really important that we make a distinction between kind of the corporate world equality and more radical on-the-nose messaging. There is, of course, a spectrum, but there are often large differences to be made. So we spoke about the Chando and, and the SK2 series about addressing more widespread societal restrictions on women but also there have been some advertising campaigns that deal with what are undoubtedly far more sensitive topics and often maybe in a way that is less clearly a direct attempt at marketing their own products so the most significant example in recent years was a poster by Durex the condom brand which was basically just a large poster of text written in tones to look like foundation, makeup foundation. This Durex advert kind of said, you know, foundation is used to cover little blemishes on your skin and so on, but are cuts and bruises blemishes. And it was this really poignant message saying, you know, you can use them to cover up slight things that you think are imperfections, but if you want to hide something that indicates violence, domestic violence, abuse, then is that really something you should be doing with makeup? Basically saying, hey, let's talk about this. Let's make it clear that these things are happening, either out in the open or more particularly behind closed doors. And it wasn't Jurex just saying, buy our condoms. It was really hitting the nail on the head with something that's really difficult to talk about, but has increasingly gained exposure on Chinese social media in recent years, particularly. And again, I think it's interesting to look at how this spectrum of forms of messaging, be it more corporate, like we've said, or more radical, as we've just discussed with the Jurex advert as well. And also these the more radical messaging can be linked to more grassroots social movements as well, of course. So we've spoken about some key Chinese feminists earlier on. Jenny mentioned Xiao Mei Li who's part of a group of what are often known as the Feminist Five now. And it's interesting how all these different movements kind of interact with each other to create social change in different ways and at different rates. So in the context of government responses, we've got this ongoing, what's been called this like flagship Me Too court case in China, which was brought to court by an intern, Zhou Xiaoxuan, often known as Xianzi, who accused the high-profile TV host Zhu Jun of sexually harassing her while she was an intern. So um, Xianzi is an intern of Zhu Jun, which is the most um, well-known host of China, and he is often the face of the Chinese central television station, of course. And um, I think in this case, it's really interesting that the the movement that Xianzi put uh, bring Zhu Jun into the court not only means that um, in the personal level, but also because of the identity and the uh, social status of Zhu Jun, it being seen as a rebel of the Chinese authority as well, because he is the face of the Chinese authority for a long time. So it wasn't just a direct challenge between a woman to a man. It was more a 
challenge of a woman who didn't have much power against a man who did have a lot of power and also represented a lot of power. And again, we can see how there are other cases of government responses. We spoke about the Shenzhen guidelines coming out in response to the pure cotton adverts. And it's clear now that there's a lot more interaction between individuals, communities, governments, and corporations more than ever before. A lot of these campaigns in the messaging, while often taking place in commercial spaces, are nevertheless very political, especially in a society like China, where there are less forums for more direct political discussion anyway. But then it can result in legal action that does have quite significant political change, such as this court case. Future opportunities and challenges for women's representation. Taking it to 2020, the year that changed everything, I want us to just discuss a little bit more about what happened in Wuhan and also the certain cases and moments that really sparked public attention in regards to men and women in the situation. Yeah, so one thing that became clear quite early on during the crisis in Wuhan, when it was the center of the world's attention, basically, was that there was a lot of states-driven media showing how things were going on the ground in Wuhan in the hospitals. And the overwhelming majority of medical staff who were being interviewed and were being positioned as the mouthpieces for this for these productions to explain what was going on were men. But the reality is that if you consider the overall healthcare workforce, it's overwhelmingly women nurses. So there was a lot of initial concern, if not anger, that women and women nurses in particular were being underrepresented when they were actually the people doing the really, really tough work. And there were cases of exhaustion, women fainting, getting ill themselves and then basically being forced to become sick because of their own work and so on. Also images of women nurses being made to shave their heads for hygiene reasons and so on. So it did cause a lot of public outcry. There were also many complaints from the staff at the scene in regards to lack of resources and equipment to meet their needs. So uh, one thing that particularly stood out was sanitary products, um, which was either completely overlooked or there was just a genuine shortage of. This gathers so much public response that batches of sanitary products were being sent or shipped to the makeshift hospitals to help out the working staff. Yeah, and it was a great case of grassroots activism happening because of movements online, which is something that we've increasingly seen in China over the past decade. The main takeout for me in that is really the power of people's voices and something that I think is a clear trajectory on looking at chronologically from where it started to where we are now, that there's no way really that you can completely discount what people are trying to say, um, even if there are certain barriers and challenges that they face in getting the message out. Yeah, completely. And that point of chronology, I think, is a really important and interesting one, because as we've been saying, 
first of all, you can never predict when social changes are going to happen. And sometimes it requires patience and often there's just an unexpected catalyst. So COVID was an example, but before that, this, in terms of breaking taboos, it makes me think back to the Brazil Olympics and there was a Chinese swimmer who I think she came third in a final race and got a bronze medal and she was interviewed afterwards, absolutely exhausted. And they said, how do you feel? And I think she felt that she could have done better, probably got silver or gold, but she just very openly said, well, you know, I'm on my period this week and I feel a bit crappy. So I'm pleased with how I've done given the circumstances. And that was really groundbreaking in China back in 2016 or whenever it was because such huge public figures generally wouldn't be bringing up those kinds of very everyday issues that women have. So again, we can see that trajectory and how, you know, it's a bit of a hot take, but something, some single comment like that by a, a major public figure can help with Wuhan nurses making more of an outcry four years later when there's a global pandemic. It's fair to take a step back and also respect that this journey of development through thought, action and representation is one that is always framed by time and place. So some of the case studies we discussed, whilst it seems ridiculous now, you know, we can definitely see familiarities with that across other parts of the world at certain times and places as well. And as China's consumption sets to grow further and further, it's going to be impossible to discount nearly half the population who ultimately contribute and shape what's soon to be the world's largest economy. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop us a message on our Instagram at TongGlobal on what you think is the future of Chinese women in media. Finally, I'd like to say thanks to my co-host Stefan and of course our speaker Elva Drew for joining the discussion today. Thank you for listening to Tong's Tracing the Trend. We are a collective of cross-cultural experts championing for a more connected and informed global society. For more information, head over to our website, tongdigital.com. Want to submit a topic for discussion? DM us on Instagram, at tongglobal, that's at T-O-N-G global, to have your voice heard.